Hey there, welcome to the second installment of the New Feel, New Look We've Been Had. I am Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. Whoa, psychedelic, psychedelic effects here that you're missing. They're fitting because this week we we're talking about the very psychedelic Flaming Lips album, The Soft Bulletin. Um, yeah. I Before we get to that, I did want to toot my own horn a little bit. I, um, You might or might not know, every morning I get up and look at an online feed of the uh, police blotter of Iowa City and draw a cartoon based on it. And um, Twin Cities Public Television did a little feature on that. And... Riding pretty high on that. Um, so if you want to, I don't even know how best to point people towards it in an audio fashion. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> yeah. your Twitter, is it linked on your Twitter? Yeah, just follow me on Twitter and you'll see it. Um, and Twitter handle, you you know it, but if you don't, it's at Keith Billy. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's pretty fun. You get to see my... my see what he looks like? That's right. Find the, the, the beautiful face behind the voice. My front porch without spiders. Win, win, win. Um, yeah, so check it out. And then the soft bulletin. I, so I just I wrote down like the basic info. Released May 1999 on Warner Brothers. The official production credit is the band Dave Friedman and Scott Booker, which was the same team as Zyrica. Uh, it seems like people just kind of give Dave Friedman the credit for producing it, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. Yeah. Somehow this was their ninth album, <laughs> which, what the fuck? Great. Um, yeah, would you care to describe the soft bulletin for anyone who hasn't heard it? Uh, it, it's kind of hard to describe. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's probably the even though it, it it's in their lifetime, it's one of their later albums. It's one of the first ones that I got involved in. Uh, besides, uh, she do what's whatever what's the she doesn't use jellies on what, transmissions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was. You know, that was kind of an after. I didn't go in chronological order. Uh, but I, you mentioned Dave Friedman, um, and he's actually produced a couple records that I really like. Yeah. He, uh, he produced The Great Destroyer uh, by Love. He produced, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. And I've, that's like, that might be my favorite record. Yeah. Holy shit. Spoon's Hot Thoughts album. Uh, that Sleater Kinney album, The Woods. Was my favorite of theirs until until the most recent one. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, and then I didn't know this, but he's also he was one of the founding mem- members of that band Mercury Rev. Yeah, and so like, I I was gonna bust this out later, but maybe the time is now. Like, um, what do you think of Mercury Rev? Well, I thought their song "Holes" was a Flaming Lips song for like three years. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean. For me, it's a little too ethereal <laughs> in to general. Me, it, they they're like everything. They're like the Flaming Lips with all elements of fun pulled out of it. <laughs> you know, and just like you're just left with this shell that, you know, it, it ain't for me. 
So I think, I, I do think that's a big part of the flaming lips, at least for me, is, is, you know, kind of thinking about their albums and also, but also thinking about kind of their live performances, which are, yeah. which is like a, I don't know, like somewhere between a carnival and a, uh, and like some kind of weird, like crazy bizarro confetti engineering convention. Yeah. Yeah. They, which their live shows are, you know, like those were some of the, some of my favorite show going experiences were flaming lips shows like a bunch of them that we went through together but that was like the level they needed to reproduce all their stuff live kind of was also the beginning of the end for me you know where like they had to do so much external production that like there was a point where i realized i had seen the exact same show and you know i'm just like well I, what you know what am I continuing to get out of this? Uh, you know, like the first iteration was great. The second iteration was pretty good, but like, do I want to see it a third time? You know, that, that was always like, like I think one of the narratives I'm going to be hitting a bunch tonight is my weird rise and fall with the flaming lips. And I think that was part of it was, you know, like they just, they'd locked themselves in. Yeah, I suppose when you set that as your expectation, you can't really, you know, you can't really, there's really nowhere to go from, like, yeah, <laughs> Flaming Lips show. Like, there's no level 11 to, to yeah. take it to. Yeah, it's, you know, you, and even trying to, like, recreate something on the same level but different would take more energy than they seemed to have after, you know, 2012 or so. Um, but to, to bounce back, so bring it just back to the album, like this album, you know, like my feelings about the band are complicated, but this album is just, you know, as much of a masterpiece as it takes a nation of millions was like, this thing is just perfect. Like I, it's just got this like level of beautiful orchestration but also kicks ass but also has like great emotional content like it just it does so many things so well it... yeah it's uh i listened to a podcast with wayne coin um it was a rhino cast podcast okay. uh, uh i think it was a 20 year anniversary of the south bulletin so they were asking him about it and he was he said that uh one of the things I found interesting is he said that this album is sort of him processing his father's death. Yeah. Um, and so, like, he, uh, he, they'd just come off recording that Zyrica album, which I candidly have never listened to, uh, because I never owned four <laughs> different CD players. Yeah, to, not an easy thing to listen to. Um, and so his... Uh, I don't know. He's the comment he made. A couple comments I thought about this album were interesting. He said that his first take was he thought it was too personal for people to connect with. Okay. That you know because he's writing these songs about this grieving process that he yeah. thought it was. He thought it was just too. It was like too in his own head for people. That's. And, I'll go ahead. Go ahead. I was oh, just gonna, the, oh, you go. <laughs> the other thing that he said was interesting that when they were making this album, he decided that his favorite instrument was a recording studio. So kind of going from their 
previous albums, which have a much rougher, rawer feel. Yeah. He really got into kind of, he said they used to record, when they used to record albums, they would do tracks you know, yeah. 40, 50 times, and he felt like they would end up settling for something that was good enough. And yeah. So he really likes messing with the studio stuff because he can, he can kind of play with it in real time. That's I, I. I had seen him quoted with that with the you know, the, my instrument is the studio, and I, that's really interesting. That's that's I you know I, again I guess that's kind of an approach that like served him really well, and then maybe didn't for a while. But the the first thing about like him worrying that the album was too personal that just I that blows my mind because like. I, I, part of the reason I think this album of theirs is the one that hits the best is that like the level of personal personalization, you know, it's that thing where it's like so specific that you can generalize it really easily. Um, you know, I, like, like fiction works that way a lot of the time. And it, it's unfortunate that he didn't see that, I guess. It, it also, it's weird to me that I remember reading, so, like, to me, like, this record is also, like, really kind of yoked in with Summer Teeth because they came out at about the same time. They're both kind of psychedelic. Um, it, and and I, I read Jeff Tweedy complain, like, saying the, the exact same thing about Summer Teeth, that, like, he worried that the rest of the band wouldn't want to work on the songs on that record because they were so personal to him. And I, it's just weird to me, like, that's what works. Don't be... Don't be sad about that. Don't feel bad about it. I wonder if part of it is that it's, you think about it, if you're at the Flaming Lips or Wilco level band, that you're going to have to go out and perform these songs. So, yeah. like you're, you know, like, if you've written this deeply personal song, like, you're going out there and and sharing it with a new group of strangers four nights a week. That's, that that's got to be a little bit daunting. Yeah, I think you're right. Maybe that's part of... Well, no. I was going to say maybe that was part of the Flaming Lips whole the theatricality thing to be able to like hide the rawness behind, you know, the big stage production. But I think they've been doing weird big stage productions all the way back. So I. <sighs> a, this is a tangent, but um, uh, do you remember that uh, Michael Azarad book, Our Band Could Be Your Life? Yeah. When he, he talks about like the pageantry of a butthole surfers con concert. Yeah. Like that's what I, the first time I saw the flaming lips, that's what I kind of, kind of got. It's like, it's so, it's almost like seeing uh Google Bordello. Like it's just yeah. totally different than anything else you're going to see. Yeah. Well, and that's, I, I'm glad you brought that up. That's actually a thing that I had noted. I saw, so you're not the only one to notice that, I guess. Uh, Gibby Haynes from the Butthole Surfers, like, has kind of this ongoing vendetta that, like, the Flaming Lips have ripped him off, and Wayne Coyne in particular has ripped him off, and, you know, like, they're nothing but, uh, you know, they're just, just a second-rate theft of the Butthole Surfers Act. One thing that I thought was interesting, um, so, like, there is this, this thing in the record that... So this this is really I guess Zyrica is really the one where Stephen draws you know, the old guitarist leaves. Stephen draws steps out from playing drums to just kind of 
being the multi-instrumentalist musical director. And, and, you know, and like, I think that's when the band got awesome. And uh, Gibby Haynes in that thing that I read where he was railing against the Flaming Lips, like, you know, his basic thing was like, Wayne Coyne is such a, you know, loser asshole ripping me off. He's, he's lucky that he's got Steven Draws to carry him. That's the only thing that makes that band worth it. And I, I, I just, I don't know. Like I, the sense of feud there is amazing to me. It's, uh, it's like the, uh, it's like the guy from uh, Megadeth who has the feud with the guy from Metallica. Oh yeah. He, he feels like he feels like they ripped him off, even he, though he was in Metallica. He was in yeah. Metallica for a while. You know, that's one of those the Megadeth Metallica thing, like. Just let them fight. Let them destroy each other. But no, it's, it's hilarious to me because it's like it, it's such a bizarre like. I guess like it, it just seems <laughs> like you're you're fighting over. You know, I mean, first of all, it's like you know, it's like Portugal going to war with Brazil over who's <laughs> you know like who speaks the better Portuguese. You know, like it's just a, it, it's not a fair fight, right? Yeah. So, so kind of same thing with this, though, right? Like I don't, I don't know how big Gibby Haynes' platform is. These days. <laughs> you know, I, the one thing I want, the one thing I got to hand Haynes is like, I don't think anyone in the Flaming Lips has or has ever had a dog named Mark Farmer from Grand Funk Railroad, <laughs> and like, that's pretty cool. Like, it if is you can do cool. that, it you've done something cool. right. It's a lot of syllables, though, if you're actually going to call the dog. like <laughs> I assume the dog thinks its name is Mark. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. I, uh, I guess I, the, the thing that really struck me with this album is the first time I heard it, um, and I think the second song, I think it was the second song, Spoonful Weighs a Ton, yeah. um, and it's got that awesome part where it just kicks in. Yeah. And I remember listening to it going, and my first reaction was, shit, do I like electronica music now? <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, because I had just come off a, a period of probably five years of my life of listening to nothing but alternative and alt country. So yeah. it was like, you know, like this and Summer Teeth really did a good job of kind of re, you know, kind of reconfiguring my brain. So it's yeah. like, you know, it doesn't have to be just straightforward Americana rock. You can do other things. Right. Have you seen that video that's been just like white hot on the internet the past week of these two uh, teen boys who are watching the video? I don't know if they're watching a video or listening on headphones. Either way, they're hearing in the air tonight for the first time. Oh, and yes, like, yes. and you know, like the first couple minutes, they're just kind of like, "Yeah, this is all right, okay." And then the drums kick in, and they just like shit their pants. And one of them's like, "I never, I, nobody brings the drums in three minutes into a song." And like, <laughs> I want those kids to hear a spoonful weighs a ton. Much quicker. Yeah, yeah. You only have to wait a minute and a half. I so I like my chronology was kind of weird, where like I had. I had Yoshimi Battles of the Pink Robots before the Soft Bulletin. And so, like, I went to see, I saw the Flaming Lips opening for Beck um, when all I had heard was Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. And, like, 
you know, like I knew that I liked them just from that album, but like seeing a spoonful weighs a ton done live. Like I just, I could not believe, you know, a, that that song existed like that and B that they were doing it live. Like, you know, and I remember thinking like that, that, that cannot be the way it is on the album. That's just that, that's some crazy fucking like special live arrangement. And no. Yeah, it's like a terrarium full of kick-ass. Like it, yeah. it it's, it's amazing. It's yeah. uh, it really, I, I don't think I can uh, overstate the mag, the magnitude of the impact that it had on me in terms of like, I don't think I would have ever gotten into David Bowie or, you know, things that are a little weirder without yeah. this album. Yeah. It really like just opened the door to the psychedelic wing in your head and said like, Hey, come on in. I mean, I think I, if, if you would have heard pet sounds in like 1995, what do you think your reaction would have been? I, I, I know for sure I would have shit all over it. I, you know, I, I remember I, I may have done that. <laughs> I, in fact, I I remember like you know at some point in undergrad just being in a in a car and like you know holding forth about how stupid the Beach Boys were and you know and I think it was good vibrations that triggered that. So not quite Pet Sounds, but like that era. Yeah, I mean, I I, I definitely did not give the Beach Boys enough credit when I was. Uh, when I was, you know, kind of in my formative years. You know, to be fair, though, like, if you're not actively going out and looking for them, you're getting the version of the Beach Boys that, like, either classic rock, classic rock radio or oldies radio are giving you. And, like, that's not the full picture. Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in Iowa. Like, surfing just isn't that big a deal there, <laughs> right? Like... <laughs> Like five states away from the nearest ocean in three directions. I wonder if any human being has ever found a way to surf in Iowa. Can you windsurf on Okaboji? I guess you could probably windsurf, but again, like there, like it just isn't a you know, like that's not the Beach Boys style. Like windsurfing's hard. Huh? But... Oh, um, I don't remember what I was gonna say. I don't know, but yeah, like just this, this no, this discovery that like, oh my God, you can, there are records that do like weird things with, you know, with noise. I, like I said, I had heard Yoshimi before this and I remember like hearing, I, putting that CD into my car and hearing the first song and, and just, you know, like what they do with like low frequency noises in there, you know, like I didn't know anything about production then but i knew like holy shit nothing sounds like this and then i got soft bulletin and it's got you know that just huge fucking epic kick in with drums and synths and again it's like i've never heard anything that sounds like this and like that's just that's such a treat to to get that yeah it's just it's nice to have your mind blown right like yeah that's that's a cool experience it doesn't happen that often yeah you know? And I think this this sort of kicks off though, like what I consider like the classic era of the Flaming Lips. Like I think peak era, Soft Bulletin, Yoshimi at War with the Mystics. Yeah. Um, then just yeah, like I guess. Gent- yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, and then gentle, maybe even not that gentle decline after that. 
Yeah, I don't know if it's that gentle, honestly. Yeah. Oh, but it's uh, it uh, it was interesting because it, it if you charted my arc on the Flaming Lips, it would start with you know like I don't know how into this I'm gonna be, and then like oh my god, this is awesome, and yeah. then like four albums later, like I think this is gonna get awesome any second now. Gotta, <laughs> gotta ride this out. <laughs> yeah, I I was saying on Twitter earlier today that like there was a stretch, you know, there was like this 10 year stretch where they were just maybe the most important band in the world to me. And, um, you know, like, like after, after I started to drift from Wilco, it was like, okay, I love the flaming lips. That is my thing. And like, just kind of stopped paying attention. You know, like you surprised me a while ago by mentioning that there was a, another album out. And I'm like, what, what? I, you know, like, I'm just not even, I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing how you run hot and then run cold on, on stuff. And like, like, so like, I mean, I had the same kind of arc with uncle Tupelo where, you know, I loved them and then just kind of drifted away. And then like, when we talked to them, like I like went back into feeling it hard with the flaming lips. I feel like, like, I'm always going to love this album. I'm always going to love Yoshimi. You know, like, the ones from the hot stretch, there's always going to be a place for them. But, like, I don't know that I'm ever going to go back to, like, actively, like, I got to follow what's up with this band, you know. Yeah, man, I think that's just, uh, I would look at it as, it's rare that you get a band that captures your, captures your, you know, your brain for that long. Like that's yeah. a rare, it's probably only happened a handful of times. So yeah. but like, there's no, it's going to be hard for them to, to keep that up for their entire career. That's yeah. just, I, don't know, I don't think it's sustainable. One of the specific things I I'd kind of drifted from the musically anyway, because like, you know, like the three albums you mentioned as the high points are all, you know, just all great. And then, embryonic comes out and it's like i think it was embryonic the the one after at war with the mystics um you know it's like a it's really long and it's kind of you know you can just kind of feel like this discipline slipping like some quality control just wasn't there where they're like yeah fuck it put it on tape let's go and like it felt like there just got to be more and more of that and like that was what pushed me away and then like wayne coin kind of started just being more out and out a shithead and like i you know taking the public pulse today i saw like he's kind of you know he's up in morrissey territory now for like having alienated you know former fans and that ain't yeah good. it's uh i wonder how much of that is a function of uh, you know like i'm sure if you had had a if Mick Jagger had Twitter in like, you know, peak Stones era. Like, how many people would he have alienated? That is a good point. Yeah, I, I think the combination of like this like increasingly insulated bubble of people telling you you rule, and like, you know, the capacity for like no filter communication with the world, like that. That's just a recipe for nothing good comes of that for anybody. I feel like sometimes you can turn it around. Like I, I, uh, 
I don't know. I mean, I feel like Neil Young kind of righted the ship after a while for, you know, releasing Ark. <laughs> you know, I love that he released Ark. Like, if I understand it right, wasn't that like an intentional fuck you to the record company? I don't know. So he's had a number of those. I don't know if that yeah, one was he, one of them. It's tough to... um, I, I know like the landing on water era, Neil Young is a middle finger to the record company, but uh, I'm not sure if Ark is or not. Excellent. I, you know, I read um, apparently Wayne Coyne's natural speaking voice or singing voice is much lower than the way he sings, you know, with the band. And that was um, because he wanted to be more like Neil Young. So like, it always comes back to Neil Young. And like, I feel like with us, like you're never gonna, you're always gonna win points with us by like invoking Neil Young in some way. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, if you're gonna go Neil Young, like, I mean, he's got to buff up the sideburns a little bit, like, you know, <laughs> he's like, got a beard. Let's, it's let's go classic era Neil Young with the lamb chops. Man, his his beard is just a pair of sideburns that have taken over his face. They just they meet in the middle. That's how comprehensive they are. It's uh. I don't know. I, I there are very few. So like I think about this album in, in a different way because it's it's right before I started listening to more music on MP3s and uh, yeah. an iPod and things like that. So it was like it was one of those albums where you could just put it in and you know like listen to it straight through. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a thing that hit me that like. I, I was thinking the exact same thing. Like, I think this was the last album that I really fell in love with on CD. And like, there's so many things on it where like, it's a masterpiece together. But if we were going song by song, you know, there are individual songs that I wouldn't have that much to say about on their own, but like in the sequence, they're great. And like, that, that's just such a different thing. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's uh, the other thing I, I like is there just, there's some just like, now, if you're having a bad day, you know, like, or you're worried about the, like, fate of society, um, which I've been doing a lot lately, you know, like, waiting on a Superman is, waiting for a Superman is kind of a, is like an anthem of, of yeah. sort of, you know, like, you know, like, just despair. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember when, when, what was the dude's name? Christopher Reeve died. I remember someone just, you know, some like online forum, someone just posted the words to waiting on, waiting on a Superman there. And like, you know, just the, the tenuous Superman connection and the sadness of that song was enough to just be like, Oh my God, this is the saddest thing ever. This is, I, for me, the, the, the resonance from that album that just kind of freaks me out now, honestly, is, um race for the prize like it's such a 2020 anthem like scientists working for a cure it might kill them they got to they got to save mankind like it's ripped from the headlines yeah it's it's interesting because it's like it's kind of a grim song but it's like uh it's so upbeat that it yeah. <laughs> delivered in such a way that it's like it doesn't ring as like dystopian as it sounds 
Yeah, it's it's that I, that kind of balance happening again and again. I think is part of why this is so great that there's like there's always this heavy emotional content to the lyrics and like the songs are really you know they're all arranged and performed in this way that gives like you know that that conveys emotion that's usually in tension with what the lyrics are about you know and like that it just puts you in this weird space that makes it keep working i don't know can something be dystopian if it's actually happening like does it (laughs) like what i i i think our lived answer is yes (laughs) i think (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if you could be living in living in a dystopia or not. There's a really good metric song where they just keep reading is repeating. Is this dystopia? So, you know, metric shares your concern. Yeah. Yeah. It's a. So one thing, one thing talking about just songs in general, that really hit me is like most, maybe all of the songs are telling some kind of a story. Um, and it's not like that on all their albums. You know, like, I don't think that's like a general statement for them, but here, like every song is kind of a story. And sometimes they're like, you know, coins, personal stories about his father or about, you know, other people in the band. And a lot of them are science fiction. Um, I, I don't know. Like it's, it's again, weird, but cool. Yeah, it's uh, so I actually listened to it. Uh, this is one of the few albums that I bought on vinyl that I also have on CD because, yeah. as you know, as you know, one of my core concepts is I don't want to be that guy that buys all these all this music on CD and then buys it again on vinyl yeah. and only listens to music on Spotify. Like that seems like a <laughs> that seems like a terrible strategy. Uh, but I did buy the Soft Bolton because I like it so much. And yeah. one of the cool things about the uh, Soft Bolton on vinyl is that, like, it's a really fun album to just sit down, listen to with the lyrics. Oh, sure. And kind of just sort of, I mean, it's like reading a, it's like reading a short story or something. Like it's, yeah. it just is kind of, it's a, it's almost like escapism to yeah. read the lyrics. It's really, really fascinating stuff. So is the vinyl sequenced the same? Like, does it mm-hmm. do the yep. complete album and then do the two remixes? That, like... Yeah, it's um, it's on two uh, two LPs, but yes, okay. it's sequenced. At least the one I have is sequenced the same way. I that I I was I've always wondered that if the two remix thing was like some specific, you know, like late '90s throw extra tracks on the end of a CD because you can thing, or if that carried through to vinyl. Cause that's such a weird flex to be like, we've dropped this masterpiece on you. We know you want to hear more. So here's, here's a couple of the songs again, just a little different, but it works. Uh, yeah. It, it probably depends. I, I feel like it depends on when you bought the vinyl. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's, or the CD. Um, you know, I, like it just is, it's hard to tell what issue people have. And yeah. I had not thought of this until I was talking just now, but the weird thing is Wilco did the same thing with Summer Teeth. You know, it ends, and then you've got, like, the track of emptiness, and then they also threw some extra shit on the end, including, like, different mixes. Like, these two albums are weirdly parallel. So the weirdest example of that, I think, is that uh, compilation record 
CD that everyone had no alternative. Yeah. Which was a benefit for for AIDS research, I think. I don't remember what they were. So I can't I, honestly. This I feel bad because I can't remember what it was a benefit for. But like, literally everyone of our in our era had this record. Yeah. And there was a hidden Nirvana track at the end. Yeah. And I and I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, this seems like kind of a dick move to put a hidden track on a benefit album. Yeah. <laughs> like, Aren't I mean, you kind of sticking it to the charity? Like, you know, like... I, I, you know, though, like, like the fact that every human being, like, the fact that every dorm in, you know, every dorm room in the country had a copy of that CD, like, I, I think the word got out. Yeah, <laughs> it was just, it's it just a weird move. Like, so, it's like, yeah, we want to be part of your benefit, but we don't want anybody to know we're part of your benefit. <laughs> No, we don't want you trading on our name. <laughs> it's uh, it reminds me of the thing from The Simpsons where um, Krusty the Clown's father, the rabbi, is like leading a debate on whether it's better to give your charity publicly so that people will be moved to you know, follow the example of your generosity, or to give it privately so that people won't think you're seeking glory. Kurt Cobain yeah. was listening to Hyman Krastovsky. Yeah, it's possible, I guess. I mean, anything's possible. It's. I just uh, I always thought that was really strange. I don't know why. Weird I, move. But I mean, but like the word got out about it. You know, you know, like it was pretty common knowledge that like, oh yeah, Nirvana track kicks ass. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was sort of the, uh, it was that and like Bob Marley legend were like ubiquitous <laughs> in the college dorm room. Like you could yeah. not go to a college dorm room without having those two CDs. I was just going to, I was going to wonder what the modern equivalent of that is. And then I realized they don't have CDs. So yeah, <laughs> they just, they all have Spotify and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, that I saw that would be interesting. I wonder if that, I wonder how that changes the like because you could guarantee that you were going to be if you were at a keg party you were going to hear like you know like you were going to hear that stone temple pilot song yes um which i gotta say i've probably heard that song 200 times yeah uh, easily and like i've never owned a copy of it i've never made any attempt to hear that song but definitely 200 times yeah, the, I mean, it just, it was so, it was, it, it was kind of neat in the fact that it was sort of a, there were like shared experiences that people had. Of, yeah. Um, which I wonder if, if that's, I mean, maybe it's the same now with YouTube and things like that, that people, there, there are things that people coalesce around. There's gotta be. Um, so it's probably not that much different. I don't know. We should find a, what do, what are the people after millennials? Zoomers. Zoomers. Yeah, find a Zoomer and ask him. Then get them to start a show called Ask a Zoomer, where like you just ask them, ask them things. Right. I can ask like old man questions. Like, do you guys remember a set of encyclopedias in your house? No. Oh, never mind. Neither do I. <laughs> TikTok. What is TikTok? <laughs> so walk me through this TikTok business. <laughs> we got to learn somehow. Oh, well, um, want to take a quick break and come back yeah, yeah. in a few and talk songs? Sounds good. 
We are back. Um, the one thing I wanted to, we kind of bounced off this a little bit, but I wanted to focus in on it more consciously. Just the cultural presence of this album. Like to me, like this is, you know, I guess they had a cultural presence before this. I mean, they were on 90210, mm. do, don't use jelly, but like, it feels like this really like established the Flaming Lips as like that weird band that everybody kind of knew about. And this is when they started doing commercials. And I, how do you feel about their willingness to like, you know, take this, like, you know, take a great, beautiful song and be like, okay, IBM, you can, you can have this. Here you go, Volkswagen. Yeah, like as a fan, I don't love it, uh, but I don't, you know, like I, I try not to hate on people for for making choices with their art, right? Like, yeah. you know, like as long as the as long as the distributions were even amongst the band, I think I can yeah. I can live with it. I do still think it's a strange choice by Volkswagen to remind their customers that someday they will die. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, Very strange. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I think I'm in the same place where, like, I, you know, my inner Mike Watt, like, freaks out. But, you know, like, they're clear, it, they're clearly not changing the content of the music to make it more commercial friendly. You know, I mean, the song you're talking about, they're saying you will die. <laughs> like, that's not what you write to sell out. Can you imagine that conversation when, when whoever, whatever Volkswagen rep is like, yeah, we want to use uh, one of your songs in our commercial. Oh, which one? Do you realize? You do you realize that, <laughs> that song is about death? So I, when I was reading up for this, I read that um, that song was meant as coin. So like one of the ongoing subplots of the Flaming Lips is Stephen Drod's heroin problem, um, and that song was Coin like reaching out to Draws, saying like, "You fucking realize like like you got to take care of yourself, Jack. You are killing yourself, and you know like be present." Um, I think that's really interesting, and you know like I apparently the Spider Bite song on. Soft bulletin. The um, I guess the inciting incident behind that is Drazd had a an infected injection site on his arm, and like they were talking about amputating it, and he was going around telling people that it was a spider bite that had gotten bad, but it was actually like from his heroin usage. Jeez. I the mix between that guy's troubles and like his just musical brilliance and then how much like, you know, coin was able to like mine out of his troubles. I don't know. It's just, it's an amazing cycle. Yeah. It's that I, I don't, I guess I don't, you know, I feel like there is, there is sometimes that linkage between great artists who are just barely holding it together. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think if, if rock and roll or, 
alternative music or any type of music has taught us one thing it's that heroin rarely ends well like yeah it's uh and it, it it's very difficult to kick apparently i my understanding is that draws did eventually kick and i believe is still clean but like the ironic thing is then it feels like coin developed some you know like I don't know if it was just entirely ego or if he – it felt like he was getting less and less tethered to reality. And I just always assumed there was a drug side to it, but I don't really know, and I'm maybe not being – Yeah. I think it – I do think it's hard when you're – when you reach that level of of kind of uh, of just – so, like, he's an eccentric guy already, right? And yeah. And now he has enough money that he doesn't have to do – you know, like he doesn't have to play by any rules that yeah. you know, tether you to society. So like, you just start getting weirder and weirder. Um, yeah, you know, like it's like Howard Hughes kind of, right? Like, yeah, it, it, but even like like Howard Hughes with people around you, specifically, you know, like with Hughes, it was like people were just like, yeah, boss. With Coin, it's like, yeah, boss. Being being weird is what makes you great. You know, like like. Right. It's not even benign neglect. It's like actively hyping it. With draws, so one of the things that I was like, my listen through for this, I realized that like, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit with a spoonful weighs a ton and with the, you know, the drum kick in, in uh, race for the prize. Like, a lot of what makes this album great, I think, is it has these just great rhythms and great shifts between rhythms. And I think this is, you know, the specifically cool thing you get when your big musical genius started out as a drummer, you know, like I think he's got tools that someone whose original main instrument was guitar just wouldn't have. And like, you know, I mean, and I think that sticks through like, fight test rules because it's got this just great you know weird plotting beat and then like weird noises coming around like i think that's a horse they kept riding for a long time yeah i mean i i feel like this is really the first album that i heard that had those sort of sonic elements like that yeah uh you know maybe it's just i just i remember uh going to the this is probably like 2009 going to the pitchfork music festival in Chicago yeah. and the flaming lips headlined. And because I'd been listening to, uh, I, probably because I've been listening to a lot of flaming lips, uh, I was really into the M 83 show, sure. um, which was, uh, which is almost all electronic. Oh. Um, and you know, it was like, it just, it, it, it's just cool that it opened all those doors for me in terms yeah. of you know, making sure that, I don't know. I just, I, I felt like I got, I got kind of stuck in a rut there for a while and yeah, I needed records like this and summer teeth to kick me out of that rut. And, it's so easy to get this notion of like purity, you know, and like I have identified the music I like and it has these elements and anything that does not have these elements is not right. And like, it's just, it's good to have something come in and blow you off kilter. So what do you make of the argument? So this argument is way out, or not way out there. It, there are a lot of people with this opinion. 
that early Flaming Lips were, you know, that's the great genius era. And then like it all goes to shit after the clouds taste metallic. And you know, that like <sighs> soft bullet non is the sellout phase. And you know, where the not, not sellout in the sense that they're using the songs for commercials, but sellout in the sense that they're not being like as just opaquely weird as they were before. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably a fair take if you're, if you were, if that's what you gravitate to, um, I listened to it and I think that's asinine. It's like saying that it's, it's like saying who's Purdue's best material ended at land speed record or something uh, like, uh, yeah, like I guarantee that person is out there. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, it probably lives like three doors down from me. Yeah. Without question. There's, between the two of us right now, physically, there is at least one person who thinks that. It, it, it's like, I mean, so like I look at it and I'm like, that's objectively not true. But you, know, it's I, I do think a big part of music appreciation is when you when it hits you. Yeah. And if it hits you, if it hit you in that early era, and that's what you became accustomed to, I can see how you might say that. Yeah. Well. Um, I think I, that's, dis I disagree with it, but but I, I, I get it, I guess. If that yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I yeah, really like thought if, you were gonna drop some QAnon like conspiracy. <laughs> You're gonna work in a you know, like a child sex trafficking bit or something. You know, like if you imagine QAnon if you imagine the flaming lips coming onto QAnon's radar, like nothing good would happen. Like they would have a field day mining all of this for clues about, you know, oh God, it, it's nasty just thinking about. It, it's like the, uh, it, it's like that. It, it's not rare that I that I say this, but like if you if you read someone that kind of like side plot and infinite jest about the like a French Canadian assassins yeah. like that sounds more believable than than the QAnon shit to me <laughs> I honestly QAnon just makes me it bums me out knowing that there are people who look at that and they're like yeah okay because I, I, <laughs> like I know like anyone like like I'm never gonna have anything in common with with any person who is you know like those people are just essentially lost yeah and i like a good conspiracy theory but like it's got to be tethered to reality right like it... i so like i like to ride my bike on 54th street in south minneapolis between lake nicomas and the river because you know it's like it's really like weirdly wide and there's never any traffic and like for quite a while, there was one house on 54th that had a bunch of Q shit in the window. And then it just like abruptly disappeared. And I always wonder what the, what the backstory was there. Like, did that person just get tired of their neighbors, like giving them the finger every time they came outside or is this like two people in the house and one, you know, the, the guy is super into Q and the wife is like, Bob, you, you are going to have to, you yeah. gotta take that down. It's me or the cue. <laughs> no good. 
Um, so one thing, this is way, way going back. One thing that really hit me about this album is that, uh, you know, when we spent the time going through St. Vincent's first couple of albums, I complained nonstop about how I didn't complain, but there was some, there were some complaints about how she used strings too much. Um, it was very mannered. It, um, you know, there was a lot going on that maybe didn't, you know, like there, it was so orchestrated that there wasn't room for emotion. I like should me. apologize to her personally. Uh, if I ever see her, I will. But uh, no, it just it hit me listening to this album that like a lot of the, the, those same elements are here. Like there are strings all over this album, and it is really orchestrated. Um, and it just like it, you know, it, it's the same things. Like some of these songs sound like movie soundtracks, like like she was trying for, but the emotional content makes it work here. You know, like I guess. At this point, like Wayne Coyne ripping his soul out and like smearing it onto the microphone gives it like this oomph that it needs. I do think, though, that that there's a blend of, of kind of ripping your soul out and then like adding in some just ass kicking elements that, yeah. that make it, you know. So I think, you know, it's interesting you bring up the you bring up the strings. I don't even think I noticed the strings. Yeah, because you the, the like you just you feel the effect without like I as I was talking like along the same lines it hit me I I almost wish I had thought of this earlier I don't think there's a guitar sol solo anywhere on this album I think like if there is I it's escaping me now but like you know I think it's all just these overall songs are put together with like parts happening that hit you emotionally but there's never like i'm gonna spend 10 bars throwing down and that's i don't know that's it's weird to me how they are able to hit you so hard that you don't in the moment notice what's hitting you you just know like oh i'm riding on a wave of musical feeling yeah i mean i think yeah i I think for lack of a better description, you know, like it just, it just works, right? Like, huh? like there's no, I don't know. You know, like sometimes it's a fine line between things sounding like formulaic and things sounding, you know, like just chaos. Yeah. And like, I, I don't know how they do it, but they thread the needle. It's, uh, it's impressive. They do here. And it just, it really is interesting to me how, you know, over time, they keep doing the same thing, but with less and less, again, I don't know if it's discipline or interest or just sense of what works, you know, but like, I, to me, like, every, every element on this is perfect. Yoshimi, like, is not as perfect, but there's, you know, a lot of great songs on it, kind of the same with at war with the mystics. And then after that, it just starts to feel like more and more there'd be like 50% carefully written songs and 50% like, Oh, well, let's just put a flange on the bass and see what happens. Someone say something about frogs. I think, I think they maybe, I think you maybe hit on it earlier that they lost kind of that story element yeah. in their later records. Like, so like this record, Yoshimi, definitely. 
um, has that. It, it, it's a series I like Tom Waits songs. Well, some Tom Waits songs. Uh, but all Tom Waits songs are like stories. Yeah. And so like, you know, it's like uh, maybe if, like Bruce Springsteen, Nebraska, right? Like, yeah. it's like they're like these vignettes of stories about rural America. Like yeah. that, you know, like there's something that, that I like about that. Like, I yeah. like that. Like stories are, I mean, people, people keep going back to stories for a reason. With Springsteen, like this is a derail, but this is just on my mind. So like last night we had some of the Democratic National Convention on and they set part of it like, you know, they had this big, you know, they have a bunch of big orchestrated moments and this big orchestrated moment set to Springsteen's The Rising. And like, I could not believe it because like, like if you listen to the song, that is the saddest song that guy has written, I think, like. You know, like it. I, I guess I kind of, in a way, it's doing what we're talking about with the soft bulletin, where it has like incredibly sad lyrics with you know this uplifting sound. But like, you know, they're like they're showing Joe Biden walking around kicking ass while this song is playing about a guy dying in the World Trade Center. Yeah, was no retreat, no surrender, not available. <laughs> I mean, there's. I mean, outside of the river, I mean, that would have been a worse choice of Springsteen <laughs> songs. But that would have been something. <laughs> I, uh, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't get like, like there's some disconnect between the people that pick, like there's always some Yahoo Republican that picks uh, Born in the USA as oh. their backing like clearly has never listened to the lyrics or no one has googled like born in the usa lyrics because that's yeah. not what the song is about but it just it baffles me like won't get fooled again gets used a lot yes, yes. what on earth i remember i remember hearing a george w bush campaign rally where they were using that and like i like was ready to call into npr and complain that they had let you know this guy's clearly trolling us, and you let him by playing that play out music. Yeah, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. <sighs> I mean, that has to be a that that legit has to be an intentional troll if, when it's chosen. You would think, but I mean, I, I think we might be giving them too much credit. I think they Probably. just like they're like, what's the base message? Like, find a song with that in it. Yeah. That's probably it. Oh. I want to hear somebody use like funky boss or something. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, like that would get my vote. Like, like well, you know, I'd like to introduce Joe Biden. Here's Professor Booty by the Beastie Boys. <laughs> well, there was, I think it was in 2016. I think early in the 2016 primaries, um, when Rudy Giuliani was still, uh, you know, pretending to be a, a viable candidate, he was very briefly like being walked on at events to the clashes. Rudy can't fail, and then like, someone actually bothered to listen to that song. <laughs> oh no, no, no! I mean, if you're Rudy Giuliani, it's got to be Night of the Vampire, right? 
I mean, <laughs> Grim Reaper, Night of the yeah. Vampire. It's an autobiographical song about him. Is he? Do you think he's trying to look like a vampire at this point? Like, I cannot imagine what it's like in that guy's head. I, I think he's convinced that he looks awesome, and it, it, kind of the the same bubble we were talking about Wayne Coyne falling into. You know, yeah. Giuliani, like Giuliani's in the same bubble, but like the people around him are shitheads instead of just like stone. <laughs> Oh. It, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. It's a. It, it is interesting that like the. So like as I said earlier, like you know, like I'm a person who's like like I have a lot of I feel like a lot of memories tied to music, right? Yeah. So like one of my favorite memories is this Flaming Lip show at the State Fair where it just poured rain. Yeah. Um, and I saw a uh, like a sheep being born in the miracle of life building which is kind of scarring but other than that awesome show and they closed with a cover of war pigs yes which was like i like i feel like the flaming lips have provided some of the best covers yeah. that i've seen of bands and that's always fun because like that i feel like when they are doing covers is when you kind of see like stripping away the psychedelia they're they, they're just a pretty kick-ass just garage band on their own that that then like has this other thing they can switch to i mean like you know they did a cover album they did they they covered dark side of the moon and it's not great but it's better than anyone else was gonna do it i guess yeah that's a tough ask i don't like i just don't think you're like it's uh it's just such a that's such a beloved album by like any pink floyd fan worth their salt is going to shit on any cover of the dark side of the moon right no yep and you know as well they probably should i uh i saw them perform a couple songs at one show from that album yeah and it was fine i mean it I, i think the problem is like so like I grew up, I grew up too late for Pink Floyd to be like a thing that yeah. was happening live. So it was like on classic rock or like the Laser Floyd show of the Planetarium. Yeah. And so like I've already seen that act with lasers and uh, Pink Floyd songs. So yeah. like it, it doesn't do much for me. But yeah, uh, you know, like that's I don't know. It's a uh, that that was kind of a misstep. Yeah, but you know, talking about them live just reminds me of like one little thing that I've always loved. I don't know if he's—I doubt he still does this—but I know that for a while, when they played live, Drozd would be playing like the guitar he would use would be the Jimmy Page double neck SG with one of the necks chopped off. <laughs> Which one? The six or the, the six string. So he's playing it like he's just playing the twelve string neck, <laughs> but like sticking out of this huge body. That's a really weird choice. It is. I mean, like, I assume like it just kind of fell into his lap, and he's like, "Hey, electric twelve string." Why not? 
must be hard to play. Is it hard to play an electric 12 string? I've never been able to play one. I, every time I've gone out, like, I've had a couple of rounds of, like, I'm going to get an electric 12 string. And, like, I either can't find one or the ones I can find are too grand. I mean, like, I understand why you would have this, you know, very improvised one because they're fucking expensive. And it just I don't seems weird. It just seems weird. Like, you'd still be able to play it if you had the six the six string neck on it right yeah maybe the six string neck was messed up I, who knows yeah I, maybe so. he just wanted to look rad ah, mission accomplished you're still yeah, talking yeah. about it yeah i don't remember that many guitars that i see but i remember that one. Oh well i think i'm tapped out on soft bulletin do you have any yeah, other yeah. i was just gonna ask you what was your favorite uh flaming lips show that you saw I think it was the outdoor show in 2011 when we saw them at like Somerset in Wisconsin. You know, like we drove yes. and it was. Yes. That... Didn't we see like, uh, wasn't a, like Pertnir Sandstone or one of those like, uh, like new wave bluegrass bands playing as well? Yeah. And. I think Okerville River was there. Okerville River, yes. I do remember this. Um, I just, I just remember they had space for like 50,000 people. Yeah. And there were like four. Is that the show where you got kicked out of a drum circle? That was. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, the story that no one judges in a drum circle is not true. That was one very judgmental <laughs> drum circle. Uh, that show that show had a lot of highlights that were non-musical related uh, our friend jeff uh drank an entire bottle of red wine in the parking lot yeah. which is not something you see every day like just just a grown man taking down a bottle of red wine that like weirdly seems like a concert thing from 1968 you know <laughs> like that sounds like something you'd Read, you know, before a Doris show, some dude just downed a bottle of red wine. Well, yeah. it, it felt, I remember in the, the, the Lips show, like, that was the most, the highest just, like, randos passing joints through the crowd rate of any show I've been to. Um, and then ended up being the highest I've ever been at a show. Um, which, you know, like, was the right thing for that time and place. Yeah. It's uh, I just uh, I just remember it being really weirdly set up because they have this massive main stage, right? And they have the the second stage was, t- was tiny, yeah, <laughs> like comically small, like a just to really drive home, like you are the lesser <laughs> act. Well, but the other thing I remember from that is that like since that place was so overbuilt, like it had just by far the best bathroom situation of any festival show I've ever yeah. been to. And there were permanent bathrooms. Yeah. It was, very, it was so weird. It was like, they, was... like, these guys are planning on hosting a lot of events. I'd, and then I think it went under. <laughs> oh, well, say la vie. How about yeah. you for favorite lips show? Probably the one, uh, so we saw them play at this tiny club called The Myth. Yeah. Um, 
where they, and I'm sure I've told the story before, but they handed out uh, laser pointers to everybody in the crowd because uh, it's a tiny venue. They didn't have a like light rig they're used to. And uh, at the end of the show, uh, they played a cover of Moonlight Mile. And uh, like Wayne Coyne walks out in this like white tuxedo with this like full length mirror and just holds it up and all the laser beams are shooting into the mirror and out. And it was just so like, I don't know. I never want to see a recording of that because I'm sure I've built it up in my mind. Like, <laughs> like I bet if you watch it, it'd be awful. But I like, I thought like, this is, this is amazing. It's, it's amazing in my imagination. And I'm always pissed that I didn't go to that one. Cause I think the, I th- I think the backstory of the myth is that it was uh, like a famous footwear or something like that. Or like a like it was some like crappy retail store that they turned into a concert venue. I I basically know it as the place where like one show that everyone loves happened and then like nothing else could. Yeah, it's it, I don't even think it's still open. It was called the, the people referred to it as the meth for a yeah. while. It was not, it was not a particularly nice place. Did not seem like it. I never, never made it in there except for that one time. I never felt bad about that. Yeah, no, it's, that's, that's the only time I've ever been in there. But do you want to, do you want to release your pick for the next album? Yeah. Let me throw it out. Um, this was, this was an audible. I, I woke up this morning thinking it was going to be something else, but I looked into my soul and I think it is going to be a no think. I know it is going to be the Loretta Lynn album produced by Jack White, Van Leer Rose. Oh, I love that album. Yeah, isn't that? It's it's a it's a good one. Plus, like then, like I, I just I love like we'll have this spread. We'll have you know our first three. We'll we'll have done a rap album, a rock album, a country album. We're eclectic men of the world. That's right. That's right. So, uh, so I guess the following one will have to be some kind of like Jello Biafria spoken word. <laughs> that or just you know you can finally like come clean with your love of smooth jazz. Kenny G. Yacht rock, man. I'm going like we're doing like Asia or something. Uh, you know what is that Steely Dan? Is it Aja or Asia? I, I think it's Aja, but I don't. I, I'm I'm a little soft on the Dan. It's AJA, right? Yeah, it is. We don't have to. I mean, I mean, we could do, uh, you know, we could do uh, Loggins and Messina. You know, <laughs> like. Uh, I mean, like we should go there at some point just to see what happens. But not not. I don't have that really. kind of. I don't have that kind of time. I feel like yeah. that's. Uh, I'd rather do Captain Beefheart. That would also be interesting. But, uh, but in the meantime, yeah, I think Van Le Rose will be pretty fun and cool. Yeah, Van Le Rose is a great album. Yeah. And drag Jack White onto the stage, too. Um, and I guess that is it for the Soft Bulletin. Uh, thanks, everybody, for rolling with us as we continue to dig into the new format. Um, Again, I am Keith. You can find me on Twitter at Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. You can find me uh, at Cook6252 on Twitter. 
Um, you can uh, you can become my like seventeenth follower. You're over fifty, aren't you? I have no idea. I've <laughs> you're you're deep into the double digits. Every time I every time I you know I get I get up there I make some stump stupid comment that alienates half the people. I'm pretty sure that I, at this point I'm like. I just take it as an article of faith that I have lost jobs that I've applied for because of who I am on Twitter, but I don't know. I feel like though, if you know, like you don't want to work anywhere that's going to scrub your Twitter account, right? Like that's kind of what I feel. I like it, it, we, we both come out ahead. Maybe if, that, <laughs> if they know it might be, it's probably for the best. Um, so yeah, you know, that's a good way to get a hold of us if, if you want. We'd love to hear from you um, unless you want to. Well, if you want to employ me, even as long as you're down with what you see on Twitter. Um, if you dug the show, please tell people about it. Uh, or go to the review function wherever you found the show and leave a review. Um, thanks again. We will talk to you soon as we uh, we dig into the rich SEMA coal that is Van Leer Rose. Yeah. Whoa. Right. That's trippy. <laughs> <laughs>